Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Our scripture passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 9. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, feel free to, or you can grab one that's in the pew in front of you. Uh, If not, it's printed for you in your worship folder, and it'll be on the screen behind me. If you're at home and watching, it should be on your screen as well. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 9 and read through verse 13. This is the depiction of Jesus' calling of Matthew the disciple. Let's read together. As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. It has been a long time since we've talked about our mission and vision priorities. And many of you are newer to Redeemer. And so we've been doing a short sermon series here at the beginning of the school year to refocus ourselves using the passages and scriptures, verses that have had particular significance in shaping our church. And this one here in Matthew chapter 9 for sure has been the case over the years as we have reflected on uh, what we see here and what we learn from Jesus with particular emphasis on verse 13 this morning. But Let me ask you a question as we get started uh, that you might be thinking about as we go along. And here it is. Who's the biggest sinner you know? Who's the biggest sinner you know? Now, there you go. Some people raising their hands in the back. I like it. Because there is a correct answer. And the correct answer is, you are the biggest sinner you know. At least that's the way it should be. It's such a key in so many things. You know, in marriage, to think of yourself and not the person that you're married to as the biggest sinner, it's a great preventative for contempt, for unforgiveness and impatience and all the things that can wreck a marriage. It's so important in parenting, uh, to be honest. It's a rule in our family, dad is the biggest sinner. And I want my kids to know that because, you know, I, I guess I think that maybe they will learn that they don't ever have to be afraid to talk to me about their struggles and their screw-ups because they can't out me. It's so important in the church, too, for all of us to be oriented that way. In Luke 15, in that famous set of parables, uh, the parable of the prodigal son being part of it, Jesus likened himself in the first of those parables to a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and 99 of them were there and safe, but one had been lost. And because of his love for that one that was lost, he left the 99 to go and search for that one lost sheep. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, later in that gospel, he said, explicitly, he said, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And so the church is his body, which means as clear as that is about what his heartbeat and his mission were, we carry on his mission 
We planted Redeemer to reach the lost. It has always been important to us that this church be a place where it is safe to be a sinner. Ray Ortland uh, has used those words. He put it like this. He said, the deal breaker in a gospel culture is not sin or failure or weakness, but words and behavior that makes the church unsafe for sinners. And so we, we as leaders have always tried to model honesty about our own sin and weakness and even our doubts in order to build a church where strugglers and seekers and skeptics might feel wanted and welcome so that we might be a church for sinners. Because it's what we see here in our Lord, we believe, this seeking and saving of the lost. And as we look at this text, I would just uh, draw your attention to two things, really. I want you to see that there's a certain magnetism to uh, Jesus's ministry and his person. And there's also a certain motor uh, of his ministry and his person that is revealed to us here. And so in the magnetism and the motor of Jesus's ministry and his person, which both are revealed to us here, we really do find, I think, uh, something very crucial about the kind of people that we are to be and the kind of people that we're to be collectively as a church. And so let's look at the text along those two lines, if you would, first. Let's uh, look first at the magnetism of his ministry. It says there in verse 10, if you would look back at the text with me, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, after Matthew's conversion and his following Jesus, Matthew threw a party and they go to Matthew's house, and, uh, and there are many tax collectors and sinners. And it says, many came and were reclining with him at table. Now, there are similar statements all throughout the Gospels. In Luke 15, as I've mentioned, verse 1, it says there, when the Pharisees saw this, they noticed that, that this group of people labeled tax collectors and sinners were just flocking to Jesus. And there and also here, it says that when the Pharisees saw this, verse 11, it didn't exactly, you know, sit well with them. And they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, you shouldn't see that as a true curiosity on their part. It's something different. And something like that, too, is similarly stated in multiple times in the Gospels. Jesus attracted crowds of irreligious people, which offended the religious folks. And to tax collectors and sinners, he was beautiful. And to Pharisees, his antics were questionable, very much like a magnet. Now, I don't understand. I even tried to do some research so I would sound smart when I, when I stood before you today, and, I, and nobody really understands fully the way that a magnet works in the way that, if you know, if you ever tried to, if you've played with a magnet or, or done anything with a magnet, you know that a magnet has the power to both attract and repel, depending on the, the charge, the way the charges interact with one another. And in many ways, very similarly, Jesus' ministry at the same time had a very powerful force drawing certain people to himself and at the same time repelling certain kinds of people from, from his ministry as well. Now, tax collectors and sinners, which we note here in verse 10 again, is technical terminology that was meant to describe a certain kind of people, the moral failures of all stripes. Definitely not good church-going sort of people. And we're told there that they flocked to Jesus. They were drawn to him, and he did not turn them away. In fact, he shared meals with them, which in that day was a very big deal because to share a meal with someone was to make a friend of that person. And so when we see Jesus eating and drinking with these people, we are to see that he indeed is what he's called elsewhere, accused of being elsewhere by these same Pharisees, a friend of sinners. 
And that was what so upset the Pharisees. And that's how you should read that question in verse 11. It is not a curiosity, it's an objection. They did not like Jesus carrying on with the wrong kind of people. In their mind, it was no way for the Messiah to act. And it's part of the reason why they ultimately rejected him. That word Pharisee literally means one who is separated. And so with these people, all of their time and energy went into keeping themselves from being polluted by living apart, by remaining separated from the wrong kinds of people. They would not share meals with people they considered unclean, for example, because if they did so, it would make them unclean. They, they could not get on board with Jesus's meal-sharing strategy here, and it was a strategy. That's what you need to see. Jesus's meals all throughout the Gospels were parables of the kingdom. Remember the lesson of the prodigal son parable. At the end of that story in Luke 15, the immoral younger brother who was a big screw-up, the one who spent his inheritance on parties and prostitutes, he is the one who took his seat at the party in his father's house to celebrate his father's grace in receiving him back into the family. But it was the dutiful older brother who always did the right thing and followed all the rules. He is the one as the parable ends, who remained outside, refusing to join that party of grace. And the lesson of that parable is explicitly stated by Jesus in Matthew's gospel to these same Pharisees when he looked at them. And I imagine it just had bubbled over by this point, and it got the best of him because it was about as direct as he was ever with them. He said, to, he looked them in the face and he said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God ahead of you. They go into the kingdom of God before you, he said. And we see this playing out. This is what is happening here. As Jesus and, the, and all of the sinners toast the kingdom and the gather while the Pharisees wrinkle their nose in disgust and refuse to join in on this movement of grace. But we should probably come back to that verse there in Matthew 21 for just a minute and ask this. Now, what, like, how is that? That what Jesus says there, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom ahead of the Pharisees? How? How does that work? I mean, it doesn't say that the Pharisees don't get in. They're just the last to get in. The sinners are first, which means these people called here sinners kind of in a derogatory way, they have a spiritual intuition that the Pharisees lack that's to their advantage. The Bible says, in fact, that we are all sinners before God, and sinners are sinners, and Pharisees are sinners too. The difference between the two, though, is that the sinners know they're sinners, and the Pharisees don't. The tax collectors like Matthew, they knew that they had screwed it all up and they had no moral standing. But those who were doing better in their religious life did not have that same intuition. And that was their spiritual advantage. So Jesus says in verse 12, it's those who are well, they don't have any need of a physician. It's those who are sick who are the ones that it just they go, to, they go to the doctor. And again, the point there is not that there are people who are spiritually well and people who are spiritually sick. We are, in our natural state, all spiritually sick. The point that Jesus is making is that there are those who are sick, and they know that they're sick, and there are those who are sick, and they think they're okay. And if you think that you're spiritually healthy like a Pharisee, then you probably will live with a very small sense of your need for Jesus. And that is what can possibly keep you out of the kingdom. But if you know that you're sick, if you're convinced that you're dying spiritually, then you, it will just make all of the sense in the world for you to go to the doctor to get the help that you need. 
That's the teaching. So John Gerstner, who uh, was uh, the mentor of R.C. Sproul, one of his main teachers, he said, the main thing between you and God is not your sins. It is your damnable good works. And they are damnable only if they're the thing that keep you out of the kingdom of grace. Now let's ask that same question another way, okay? As we kind of wrestle with these things a little bit more. Why did the tax collectors and the sinners feast? And why did the Pharisees grumble? And it's because the meals carried the message of the kingdom. And the message of the kingdom was this, that salvation is in fact by grace alone, that we are not we are not saved by the good works that we do. If that were so, then it would be the Pharisees that would have been feasting and the tax collectors and the prostitutes that have been, would have been left out. But we are indeed saved by grace alone, and that is good news for sinners. There's only one way to be made right with God. That is to repent of both your sin and also your righteousness, to confess the bad things that you have done in trying to live your life apart from God on your own, and also to confess all of the good things that you're trying to do to make up for all of those bad things that you know you're guilty of, and to turn instead and trust in Jesus and in his goodness and in his obedience to God and his death upon the cross for you. Not your works, not your moral record, but what he has done. See, the good news of Christianity is just this, that you're never so out of sorts that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Isn't that good news? Isn't that such obvious good news? But the second part of what I'm about to say, that's much harder to believe, and it's this. Not only are you never so out of sorts that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, you are also never so put together that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And that's much harder. It's what the Apostle Paul refers to as the offense of the cross. Grace is amazing to sinners who know they need it. But grace is also offensive to those who think they're righteous on their own. And that's the dilemma we see in this text. Charles Spurgeon, he illustrated this, and I've used this before, but it's fun. And so, you know, and I want it to be imprinted upon your imagination a little bit. He said, if you're going to throw a feast, if you're going to have a party, make sure to invite the beggars. They make the best guests. He said, the prim and proper ladies, as the food comes in, they might raise their eyebrows and and mutter something like, hmm, you know, and uh, pick suspiciously at the food with their fork and compare it to what others have served at their dinner parties and then probably complain about the service. But the beggars... The poor, not them. I mean, they're so amazed to have been invited in the first place, he said. They're going to cheer at every plate. Hooray for the turkey! You know? Three cheers for the mashed potatoes. Look at that gravy. Wow, can you believe we're here? So make sure you invite the beggars. Paul's letter to the Galatians described what happens when tax collectors and sinners become Christians by believing in Jesus, but then eventually go on to become Pharisees by starting to trust in their own goodness. It can happen. And the first warning sign that Paul lets us in on there is that they lose their joy. So if you're not feasting on God's grace, if you're not cheering at every plate, if you're more prone to grumbling or envy or self-pity, if you could be honest this morning, then you likely 
don't see yourself as a beggar because beggars cheer at every plate. See, religion, the reason it's so dangerous in the way that I mean it, religion is a way of dividing the world up into two kinds of people, the good people and the bad people, the righteous and the sinners, and then being sure that you're on the righteous side of the line and not the sinner side. Jesus is adopting the Pharisees' language here to expose the faultiness of it. But the message of Christianity is quite different. It is, in fact, that the line dividing good and evil doesn't run between political parties or different groups of people or different ethnicities or nationalities. It actually runs through every human heart. There is none that are righteous, not one. As we read, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, the work the work of sanctification, of growing in gospel faith and love, which is the goal, okay? That is the goal. He said, in all of that language in First John, don't miss that he says, if you have no sin, you know, if you say you have no sin, you lie and so forth. And Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. But he says, I write to you so that you may not sin. That work of sanctification, of growing in gospel faith and love is repentance. And in Luke's account of this same story, in verse 32 of chapter 5 there, Jesus says this. He says it this way, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And again, the point is, you have to know you're a sinner before you repent. And the tax collectors and the sinners, they have that advantage there. They know their sin. Everybody's told them their whole life what big sinners they were, and so they can repent. But the Pharisees, see, their problem is they think of themselves as being righteous, of not needing to repent of any sin. And so they have to first learn how to repent of that righteousness and become sinners before God. And that's so much harder. It's so much harder to repent of your righteousness than it is to repent of your sin. It's harder to embrace grace if you're winning, if you're doing better compared to everybody else. But that is, that is a key issue. Righteousness is a gift not a wage, it's received, not achieved. To get Jesus' righteousness, you have to lose your own. And that's how you start in Christianity. You come to God. I mean, this, if you're here and you're, and you're not sure how this Christianity thing works, you start in Christianity by coming to God and saying, look, I've, I've got nothing. I've got nothing except that you're a God who saves. But then you go on in your, the Christian life, all throughout the rest of your life, turning away from all the attempts of your flesh to find something, some kind of righteousness that you can, some works that you're doing that you can boast in. And it's constant, the flesh doing this. And so repentance is constant all throughout life. Again, towards the goal of sanctification, which Steve Brown, who taught me preaching at Reformed Theological Seminary, he used to say, the only people who get better are the people who know that if they never get better, God will love them anyway. Repentance is the goal, but grace is the, is the energy. Grace is the spiritual power for it. And these tax collectors and these sinners, the sinners, they were already keenly aware that they were morally bankrupt. For them, the grace of the gospel was the best thing they'd ever heard. And wherever Jesus went, they followed him around. And if he ever invited them to dinner, there's no way they were saying no. Because he taught and he embodied grace. At the same time, these religious Pharisees, they were repelled by that grace of Jesus, at least at first. The grace that he spoke of and he showed their whole life because their whole life was built on the foundation of works. And their identity came from being a good person. And if what Jesus was doing, if what he was saying was true, if they were no different than all those other people, if they were no better in God's eyes than the prostitutes and the other sexual sinners then the whole structure of their life started to crumble. The church is a place for sinners. Just like AA is for alcoholics, 
Like the swamp on Saturday nights is for UF fans. I won't go there. I refuse to. I don't do it. It doesn't matter. We could be favored by 25 points. I'm not going. <laughs> don't invite me. It's not a place for people who wear garnet and gold. The church is a place for sinners. Jesus' teaching and ministry attracted the irreligious and the immoral and offended the Bible-believing religious folks. Tax collectors and sinners flocked to Jesus. Pharisees were standoffish and often suspicious. Now, here's the question as I apply this, because this is, again, to be a series about us as a church and the kind of church that Jesus is making us into by his spirit. If that was true of his life and ministry, here's the question we have to ask. Is it the same in the church? Or we might ask, why is it that we seem to have the opposite effect, that religious people tend to flock to the church and irreligious people are often standoffish and skeptical. Uh, Tim Keller, who's been very impactful to us, he suggested that maybe if that's the case, and a lot of times it is the case, maybe it's because our preaching and our practices are not declaring the same message of grace. Otherwise, wouldn't we expect the same result? Now, Dr. Keller went on to say that to the degree that the church resembles Jesus in its message and its tone, its culture, it will be attractive and hospitable to irreligious and immoral people and at times will be challenging for religious and moral people. It will be a place that is welcoming to sinners and skeptics, where it's safe to be a sinner, a place where prodigals are embraced and their repentance is celebrated and elder brothers too. Where anyone who repents will be celebrated the way Jesus says all of heaven stops and celebrates when a sinner repents. A place where our kids know, this is really important to me, where our kids know it's okay to struggle. It's okay to screw up. They're not supposed to know how to do it. They're young. What matters is how you respond. To be a Christian doesn't mean you always get it right. You get it wrong most of the time. It means you trust in Jesus enough that he believes you the very best when you're at, very worst, at your very worst. And you learn it by being around people who love you the very best when you're at your very worst. Your successes and your goodness do not earn you God's love, and they should not earn you our love. And so your failure and your sin cannot disqualify you from his love or from being a part of this community. See, the kids that are leaving the church and are, are we're, told, we're told this generation you know, is deconstructing, here's my, I, I don't believe it. I think that most of the kids that are leaving the church, they're not just de deconstructing Christianity. They're deconstructing the graceless, moralistic, knockoff version that's a fake. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Isn't that great news? But second, we see also not just the magnetism of grace, but also the motor of mercy, the motor of his ministry. And here I have in mind, I want to go a little deeper into verse 13. And in verse 13, he, he offers the corrective. You see, so he's, he's identifying that there's something really wrong in the approach and in the heart of these uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders. And he offers the corrective. He says to them there in verse 13, listen, guys, you need to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so the motor there, we're told, for eternal life is the heart of God. It's God's power. It's God's call. Look there again, verse 13, he says, I came to call sinners, which is a reminder for us. How does someone become a Christian? They have to be called by God. You don't become a Christian by getting religion, by getting serious about your spiritual life, right? Because things are falling apart and you got to do something. It doesn't start with you, not at all. 
It starts with God, with God's call. You don't take up Christianity, it takes you up. You don't take it up, you're taken up by it. You don't go looking for it, it comes looking for you. In the beginning, you know, you might think, man, I'm searching, I'm looking into spiritual things, I'm reading the books, I'm doing, I'm doing all the stuff. But at some point, what happens in your journey in the spiritual life is you become aware that you thought it was your idea, but it wasn't your idea at all. You thought you were seeking God, but in truth, it was God who was seeking you. Something came looking for you. As the hymn says, Lord, tis not that I did choose thee. That I know could never be. This heart would still refuse thee had thou not chosen me. In Luke 19, we meet a man named Zacchaeus. He's one of my favorites in the Gospels. I love that little guy. Jesus was coming into his town and he, this man, he went looking for Jesus. He climbed up into a sycamore tree, as the child's song that we sing says. I don't know if it was or not, but nevertheless. And uh, because he was short and he wanted to, to not miss Jesus, he wanted to see him as he passed by. But if you know the story, when Jesus got to the stop there where the, tr- the tree was, he looked up and saw Zacchaeus there. He said, Zacchaeus, come down because I have to stay with you today. And the lesson of the story was Zacchaeus thought he was looking for Jesus, but Jesus had come looking for Zacchaeus. And then in that story at the end in verse 10 of chapter 19, he says, as Zacchaeus just wildly turns his life around in the moment, repents and offers to give all of his wealth that he's stolen from other people back so that Jesus' name might be honored because he has come to love and appreciate him so much. Jesus says, look what's happening. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus, you thought you were looking for me. I was the one who came looking for you. Jesus came seeking to save the lost, not the found. He came calling sinners, not the righteous. There was a particular focus, an intentional magnetic charge that attracted certain people. That's what we learn here, right? If Jesus came seeking and calling sinners, then we have been sent to seek and to call the lost to trust in Jesus too and to give their lives to him. That should be our focus as well. I've always appreciated Eugene Peterson's translation of this verse in the message. Uh, it just challenges me. He, sa- he says this, I came, he, this is how he has Jesus saying it, I came to invite outsiders, not to coddle insiders. Again, let me apply this to us just for a minute if you would, just, just as we do some cultural architecture of our church. This is a little bit different than we would normally do, but I think it's appropriate today. If you look around the landscape of evangelicalism, Protestant Christianity, I guess you could say, less than 10% of churches are growing. What the numbers say is less than 1% of all churches in America are growing through intentional evangelism. Now, one of the things you need to know is, and if you're, if you're into prayer cards, please make this a prayer card and pray this for us, but we have a stated goal to grow by 5% every year through conversions in this church. That means that we're praying that we would see around 15 to 20 professors of faith, including the children who've been baptized here who would be becoming communicant members of our church. This year, we're praying for 15 to 20 professions. And we acknowledge it's a work that God must accomplish. It's God's call, right? But we're asking him to do that. And we're intent on, we're intent on doing all that we can not to quench God's spirit, but to anguish over the lostness of the people that we love and to share the gospel with them because it's the mission that he has given to us. I mean, less than 15% in our community, 15% of people in our community are part of a religious group like the church. If you're not aware, Florida, and even this part of Florida, is not the deep south. It's not like 
Montgomery, Alabama, or I don't know, wherever you would think, Nashville, Tennessee, I, I don't know, where almost 50% of people, that number would be here, 15% or less. That means there are 120,000 people in this little place we call Winter Haven that do not know and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. That's staggering, isn't it? If we planted 25 churches, brand new, and each of those churches grew by 500 people who were not in church before, that would still only be a 10% increase of that number, which is, by the way, exponentially increasing year after year after year, which if you're trying to drive around, you know that's the case. Now also, we are coming to the end of, a, of year 15 as a church, and the data is clear, and we should be sobered by this, with very few exceptions, the window of effective evangelism in a church closes after 15 years. And this is why we plant churches, by the way, because the focus and the effort of church plants is outward, it's towards the lost, but as churches grow and mature, as the lost are found and they come in, then more and more energy is just, you understand, is begins to be expended inwardly. Now, anecdotally, I can tell you a story from our experience. Uh, when we planted Redeemer Southwest, we had two congregations at one time in 2019, and we do statistical reports at the end of the year. And when we tallied it all up, we realized that 27 people, including children, made professions of faith in our church that year. That's an amazing thing. We give God glory for that. And I was really excited about it until I realized that 22 of those 27 were from that little church plant, Redeemer Southwest. And five, five. Come on, guys, we can do better than that, right? I mean, that, that only five came from a church that was the size of three or 400 people. 22 in a church that's less than 100. This is why we plant churches. In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul described his sorrow and his anguish over the lostness of his people. Do you anguish over the people in your life who don't know Christ? Who are you praying for that they would come to faith in Jesus? You should have an answer. Now, what we see is the motor behind all of this is mercy. Look again at the text. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That is the corrective. And it's really wonderful because we're being shown what really motivates God and God's heart here and how he would want us to be motivated to by mercy, not sacrifice. Now, <clears throat> this is a quote from Hosea 6, verse 6. And the problem, excuse me, the problem Hosea addressed there in his prophetic address was the people's lack of love. He said these people that he was, the, the Israelites at this time, they were like dew on the ground in Florida in the summer. That was there for a minute and quickly burns off as the sun comes up. They were religious. They made all the sacrifices. They performed the ceremonies. They were fastidious in their obedience, but they did not love. They weren't motivated by love. They weren't motivated by love for God. They weren't motivated by love for others. And that was the problem with these Pharisees here in Matthew 9, too. They were, they were more concerned with about their rightness than about the lostness of the world. They were primarily motivated by doctrinal and moral purity, which caused them to exclude anybody who didn't live up to their standards when they should have been motivated by love and welcome. God, <clears throat> God desires mercy. That's what the text says. He desires mercy. 
Just had to get that out of the way. Sorry about that. This is the enemy. Pray. This is what happens. This is the important part of the sermon. <clears throat> Satan is constricting my throat. <clears throat> God desires mercy. That's why Jesus Christ came into the world. Dane Ortland, who's written a, a lovely book that we recommend to people, compiling material from a number of the Puritans, he wrote this, and I just found it profound in reviewing it this week. He said that the incarnation is proof that your sins are the cause of God actually loving you more, not less. Your sins cause God's compassion to grow warmer and more tender towards you. That's Hosea 11.8. God is most compassionate toward you in the places of your greatest weakness. He says your failures inflame his heart for you, so much so that he is unable to bring his just wrath against sin down upon you. But here's what the gospel teaches us, that instead of his wrath coming down, he himself came down to bear that wrath, dying upon the cross in the person of Jesus as our substitute, enduring our just sentence. That is the gospel. So Dane Ortland writes, the sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. And he says, it is not our loveliness that wins his love, it is our unloveliness. God desires mercy. That's why Christ has come. He desires mercy, and that's why he has sent you and me. God runs to sinners. Luke 15. And we should run towards sinners in their sin too, with compassion and patience and forgiveness. God is a God of justice and wrath, yes. Yes, but those are what Jonathan Edwards called his strange works, his side gig. Mercy is his day job. Ortland again, he said this, not once in scripture are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger, his anger requires provocation, but his mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We, you and me, we typically need to be, need no provoking toward anger. We need provoking towards love. And we assume it's the same with God, but in fact, it is not. God needs no provoking to love. He needs provoking toward anger. His ways are not our ways. But here's the thing. How else is the world to know what God is like unless they meet with his overflowing mercy in those who have been made and then redeemed to be his image bearers in the world? So what's the takeaway? You see it there uh, in the outline that I've given you. What's the takeaway? And here's what I think it would be, that we, that we would be and become by God's grace in the power of the Spirit, a church for sinners. Leslie Newbegin was a missionary in India beginning in 1947 through 1973. So he was there for about 30 years or so, 35 years. Uh, he retired in 1973 and returned home to England. And he soon realized that during the 30 years that he was gone, Western culture had undergone such a seismic shift that it had become profoundly non-Christian, that the, the culture, unlike when he had left in the 40s, no longer Christianized people, but the church, as he noticed, it hadn't adapted. And he wrote a number of books about how the church was in crisis and declining because 
it failed to realize that it was in a missionary context that in fact really was no different than what he had experienced in India. And he, and he wrote about how Christians need, needed to start thinking and acting like missionaries and how the church needed to resist the enormous pressure to focus time and energy and manpower on the insiders instead of putting energy into building gospel relationships with outsiders. And so when we talk about, and this can be tricky language because it's not always you're not always sure what you mean by it, but when we talk about it being a church that's on mission or a missional church, we mean a church where everything, not just one program or church is missions, but everything, where worship services, small groups, communications, everything is thoughtfully designed to be as accessible and inviting to non-believers as possible. Because here is ultimately, I think, what Jesus is reminding of us, uh, as a, excuse me, reminding us of this morning. The church isn't for you. You are the church. And you're here for the world. Isn't that true? So I, I, there's this a newer hymn from uh, the late 90s that I came across that I would just leave you with. Uh, by Carolyn Winfrey, no relation. I guess, I don't know, maybe I ought to look that up. Uh, Gillett, I think is her last name. God's great love is so amazing. Here's what she says. <clears throat> God's great love is so amazing. See a shepherd with his flocks. Ninety-nine are safely grazing. One is lost among the rocks. That good shepherd goes and searches till he finds the one astray. So God says to fill our churches with the ones who've lost their way. He goes on from Luke 15, or she goes on meditating in Luke 15. God in love is always seeking. See a woman with her broom. For a single coin, she's sweeping every corner of the room. And when it's found... She calls each neighbor, telling friends from all around, so God says to search and labor till God's precious ones are found. God keeps waiting, searching, yearning. See a father's heartfelt joy, thankful for his son's returning. He runs out to greet his boy. To the angry older brother, hear the father's patient call. So God says, to love each other, for in Christ, God loves us all. Would you pray with me as we reflect together for just a minute? So, Father, we marvel this morning at your heart of mercy toward us, <laughs> but not just toward us, your heart of mercy toward the whole world. And we would acknowledge before you the truth that all the good things that you give, as we see in the promise of Abraham, to Abraham, that all of the good things that you give, all of the salvation that you're working in, in us is meant to come to us on its way to somebody else. And yet, like the Israelites of old and like these Pharisees in this story here and as they pop up other places in the Gospels, we can, we can become so enamored with what we see to be as our privileged place before you, that we forget that you intend for us to take the mercy and the grace that you have so, so wonderfully shown to us and turn around and offer it to someone else, but we would become cul-de-sacs of grace where we just take it for ourselves and enjoy it and not allow the love of Christ to compel us towards a life of love towards others. Forgive us our selfishness and our short-sightedness. Cause grace to be amazing to us yet again this morning in such a new and powerful way uh, that as we marvel at the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sins, 
that we would sing as we're about to sing in this song, that, that what would come out of us would be hallelujah, and that that hallelujah would overflow, not just in words, but in deeds and in actions where we, where we intentionally become people that are on mission with you, that go and seek in every way we can to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus to a lost and dying world so that uh, your name and your renown might be made great, so that you might gain a worldwide reputation because you are worthy of such things and we know it's on your heart. So do this among us and in us, we pray, and do it through us by the power of the Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So please remember, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not go, as he sends us now, you do not go to live toward the heart of God. You go to live from the heart of God for you, from the mercy of God for you. And that's what this benediction means, that right here at the beginning of the week, before we go out and mess it up royally, or before we go out and kill it this next week, whatever it might be, this is the heart of God for you. This is the mercy of God for you. These words of benediction, so receive them, and then go living from his heart for you. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear these words. May, your, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.